Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA kit by Endocana Health. If you take pride in your canna nerdiness or are just canna curious, this kit empowers you to find more about the best cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the Endo DNA Collection Kit, Endo Decoded Report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestions, and Endo Align products matching in your state. There will also be suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods for inhalation or usage. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a buy one, get one offer on their Afika soft gel lineup. And since I know that many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afika Unwind, created to support health sleep cycles using patented proprietary formulations of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are in your future. Buy one for yourself and get one for a friend at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at the checkout for 25% off your DNA test kit. This is The Cannamom Show, a podcast chronicling the inspiring stories of real women in the emerging cannabis industry. Your host, Joyce Gerber, mom, lawyer, political activist, has been speaking with women from coast to coast who are leaders in the revolution of cannabis and caregiving. Now, in season two, The Cannamom Show continues on its mission to empower women-centric cannabis businesses by sharing their stories with you. Go make yourself a cup of tea or roll yourself a joint. Sit back and learn something new about this magical plant on The Cannamom Show with Joyce Gerber. Welcome, Dave. It's just a Hello. few more shows of 2020. Can we believe it? I can't even believe it. Like craziness, yeah. craziness, craziness. It's like we've been doing this forever and it seems like just yesterday we started. Are you looking forward to 2021? I, I don't Sorry. even know what the answer that is. <laughs> <laughs> I've been happier since 5781 started. Oh, right. So, you know, you know, I've been kind of off. Yeah, I've been off too. I've been writing 5780 on my checks all year. It's tragic. All right. So I was just listening to this weirdly odd, hopeful story, which I'm going to share. It was about using repurposing campaign signs for assisted technology. So this weird thing, right? turning this big divisive politics that we're in into something inclusive and giving and helpful. I like it. How, how does that so work? You're making lemonade. So I was an OT specialist up in New Hampshire. She's an academic, I think. And she was teaching her students how, you know, when you're in this business, you need to be able to use anything to help people. And that apparently campaign signs, because, and I ran for a campaign, so I know this. They're always coated in plastic and they're pretty heavy. They're durable because they're outside. And so these can be used for tabletops, I guess. They can be used for assisting people with who are wheelchairs need things elevated. You know, kind of like, I think they're duct taping these things together, but she collects them and she's teaching her students how to repurpose this. So that was a strangely hopeful story that maybe 2021 will be better. I love that. I think that's very hopeful. And what a great message to send that even out of the worst things, we can make something wonderful. Exactly. And that voice, my friends, is my co-host for today, all the way from Texas, Dory Wall. She is the founder, creator of, and I'm not making this up, Half 
half-baked housewives. Check them out. So uh, we've been hanging out in the cannabis world for a while, and she is joining me today. So welcome, Dory. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Okay. And we're going to talk to our guest today, and we might go a little long today because we just got a lot of people in our virtual studio, which is fun because it's the holidays. This might have been, this should have been our holiday party, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> we got one more show next week. Okay. Um, I'll send out so, some, I'll send out some eggnog Federal Express so everyone can you should, My husband's company did that. They're doing like a, this is kind of off topic, but they're doing um, a party. So they sent everybody gift boxes to make their own drinks, like special, like special things for making beverages without the liquor, just like the extra stuff. And yep. they're going to make a cocktail party. I think I we could do it. that. I think we could do that too. We could teach people how to road joints. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put that on the calendar for next year. I like that idea. I can't do it, but I will hire my son who is an adult people. I say this every week. He can teach us. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been able to do that either. It, it's, I think it's, it's me, past, me neither. It looks so easy. It looks so easy. And every time I've tried it, it falls apart. Well, shameless on the TV show, shameless. They had, I don't have to know that they were having little kids roll them. So maybe that's a trick. You need little teeny fingers. <laughs> I guess so. It's just not as easy as rolling up a mushu pancake, you know? That's how Absolutely. I thought it. Okay. So my poor guest, she's just sitting here waiting. So let's introduce today's guest and let's get the show rolling. All right. So my friend Dory is joining us from Texas, but today's guest is joining us from California. Her transition into the cannabis industry from wine and academia makes her a unicorn in the post-harvest technology sector with both biology and chemistry experience. When she was first encouraged to use her unique skill set in the cannabis industry, she was hesitant because the plant had never really been part of her life, although her Native American heritage and her own father had always treated it as a medicine. Here today to share her story of why following the odd advice of two women who are guiding her academic life allowed her to transition from academic research to industry research and how she found her place in the regulated market in California. Here today to share why she's on a mission to use the lessons of the past to create the industry of the future without reinventing the wheel. Please welcome to the Canamom Show, Renee Engel-Goodner of Reg Science. Welcome, Renee. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, we're happy to join you. How's the weather out there in California? Uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, I think a storm is coming in, but I welcome the rain anytime. I know, because I know there were fires. They were impacting the cannabis industry a little bit out there, right? Yeah, absolutely, actually. It's interesting because when I was in the wine industry, I worked on a smoke taint method, which is a huge problem where the smoke gets on the grapes. And then later when you drink the wine, it has this bad aroma and flavor. And so that's actually one of my interests in the cannabis industry. What does the smoke do to the cannabis plant and how does it affect the products that we use? That's amazing. All right. So let's go just let's jump right in then. So how did, how did this happen? How did you transition from academia to wine? And then when did you go to cannabis? 2015? So I went to cannabis in about 2018. Oh, 2018. Actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So my background really was genetics. So I was diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder when I was 17. And I decided, you know what? I want to be a geneticist. I want to find the cure for my disorder. I want to work on cancer, all of these different things. And so I decided to go down that path. I got a bachelor's degree in genetics from UC Davis and then went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for a PhD in genetics. 
and you know life happens and unfortunately during my third year there my husband was killed in a traffic accident oh i'm sorry and, wow. yeah it was it was probably a very it was a very pivotal time in my life and so at that time i didn't know what to do i was in wisconsin away from my family in california and so I decided that I was going to take a leave of absence three years in. Mm -hmm. And my father was diagnosed with end-stage colon cancer. And so I decided to take that leave of absence, come to California, take care of my dad. And I worked in a, a laboratory at UC Davis where I got my bachelor's degree. And while I was at the lab in UC Davis, I had a supplement National Institute of Health grant, and it was cut by 20% because of the war. And this was back in about, I would say, 2007, 2008. Okay. And well, so I actually, to supplement my income, started teaching at California community colleges. And I did that for four years. And at that point, I was like, I am sick of freeway flying, and I never knew if my classes would be canceled, and I was working at multiple colleges. So that's when I decided to go to industry. Okay. And I went to a laboratory in Davis, and I worked there for about five years, actually. And it was post-harvest discovery research, and it was my favorite job. I've ever done. And this was for the wine industry? You were the post-harvest? This was the post-harvest agriculture industry. Okay. And so my genetics background did play a part in this work. However, I was taught analytical chemistry. I took lots of chemistry courses in the past, but I actually got hands-on in the field analytical chemistry experience. I learned it. And this is where I tied the molecular biology or the microbiology with chemistry. So this is where it really all started. And it was a lab called, and it was, the company was called AgroFresh. And at that time it was owned by the Dow Chemical Company. It's a big, and big place. Okay. A very, a very big company. And I actually worked on some projects and some of these projects led to a patent that I shared with some other colleagues. So I'm actually an inventor and that was a really fun experience, but I learned about all of these different agricultural crops and how you treat them after they've been harvested so that they last longer. So really we were reducing food waste, hmm. but also flour waste as well. And I looked at a lot of different pesticides, including natural pesticides. So people hear pesticides and they're very scared. And some of them are you know, very harmful and scary, depending on the levels and the concentrations. But we also looked at more natural ways of um, treating post-harvest crops. And that experience really solidified my transition into the wine industry. So the lab ended up shutting down. And so I went into the wine industry and worked for a large winery and I ran a testing laboratory. So can you just explain for like lay people, like I'm not even sure I quite understand why is it so unique to have both the chemistry and the biology? I, I understand that it is. I just don't, I can't explain it. So can you explain it? Because sure. it is unique. Yeah. 
It, it's unique because when you go to school and you learn one of the two sectors, they're so different. There are overlaps, but your courses and everything are related to either more of a biology or a chemical nature. And a lot of chemists don't understand biology and vice versa, and it's almost a different language. Um, and so well, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think that's useful. I even think about yeah. the law. The law is kind of a different language. So basically you're learning yeah. a language to communicate. That's interesting way of putting it. Good. Yeah, exactly. But what I learned in that role in the post-harvest lab is that you can use chemistry to monitor the biology because you're looking at the treatments that you're putting on these crops to make sure that they don't grow these molds or go to the point of being wasted very you know early. So that so, so that the point of so post-harvest research is basically making sure that plants are but whatever that whatever happens after plants that it doesn't deteriorate or fungi absolutely. or whatever. I'm so on nature like I <laughs> I have to get my language out to get better. But all right. So the whole post-harvest is a whole another specialty to make sure that the plants that you've grown and harvested get to where they need to be in the right shape. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's all the way from when you first harvest them, you transport them, you store them, including temperature, humidity, what kind of treatments you're going to put on them. I had no clue that this is this went into these the food that we eat or these products that we use. It's amazing, actually. And so I have a, a new respect for the post harvest industry. So I, I, so I guess I sort of understand that. So I've seen, I've been to grow facilities and I've seen the rooms with the grow. And so that makes sense that that's actually how we do other plants. That Yes. <laughs> All right. That's good to know. All right. So you're doing this, you're in academia. You, so you went from, you're working for a wine company or you, yes. okay. Okay. Yeah, so I worked for a large wine company in California that has facilities in the Napa area, the Lodi area, and the Monterey area. And so I was the analytical lab manager, and it was a testing laboratory, which then comes under federal regulation. So I was able to take my science knowledge with the biology and the chemistry and then wrap it up with the federal regulation and actually go through and do legal testing especially based on alcohol content because that's a huge you know federal regulation and it was a very high throughput job in terms of the number of samples that would go through harvest i was managing 20 something people 24 7 for three to four months out of the year but i gained so much experience in terms of federal regulation and ensuring that the wine was safe for consumers i think people take this for granted we think you know we live in this world and we buy a bottle of wine and we're not going to get sick or you know we hope anything we buy and i i I mean i know i personally don't think about all the steps so this is this is like a like inside insider's look at how our world really works and and the regulations are so i mean cannabis is so complicated so i'm sure wine has its own weird specialties too so you need to have a specialist who understands how this they impact each other that's interesting Yeah, what was interesting about the wine industry is because it's federally regulated, there are standardized methods. And it's very much that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you can be shut down or fined. And everybody 
tends to be very transparent with their coworkers. And if you have to sign a certificate of analysis, it's a legal document. So really, ultimately, the lab was ensuring that the wine would be of high quality and would be safe for consumer consumption. Which is what we want for cannabis, too. That's sort of the goal. Exactly. Exactly. So, Without, but, but now we don't have any guidance. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. And I had been watching what was happening in California with the, with the cannabis industry. And I had people for years saying, you know, Renee, you should really get into cannabis. You understand all of the science. You've done the post-harvest agriculture. You've done wine um, and you would be perfect because I am that unicorn with the biology and the, and, and the chemistry. Right. And so once it was state legal, I decided, decided to make that leap into cannabis. People thought I was crazy. What are you doing? The wine industry is so amazing. You know, you go to these parties and drink wine and it's, it's just what it is. Right. And I just had to make the leap and I knew it was a risk because I wanted to be a trailblazer. I wanted, I, I'm proud of you for wanting to be a trailblazer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to be part of an industry where the science was somewhat new mm-hmm. and I could help with the regulations and setting the standards and having high ethics and morals when it comes to the data. And I really wanted to educate the industry and I wanted to make sure that these cannabis products were safe, these products that would go into the dispensaries, but also for personal use. And so I did it in that, 2018. So, and who did you go? So you're 2018, you're working for, did you go to another company? How did this, how did you start? What was the big yeah, transition? So I basically went to a testing lab in California. And so I have been at a couple of testing labs for different opportunities, lab director and chief scientific officer roles. And the last lab I was in, it was a really good experience because we were the first validated lab in the state of California that was not a legacy lab, meaning it was one of the newer labs. So you're setting up a new, so let's just kind of, I know I talk a lot about California, about how crazy you all are out there. And one of the issues I hear often is about, it's true, the testing labs are a huge issue, right? And I talked to, I've talked to other women scientists who are trying to elevate again like I say elevate the professionalism in this industry right and they're coming into legacy labs and they're having a very hard time so can you talk just a little bit about why it is so important at what level the federal regulations have to come in to sort of as an umbrella and then I mean I know you're doing a lot so I want to talk about the colleges too but maybe just talk about what's so important about safety and things for the federal and what you saw happening or maybe and and what you are doing what's the next step because I know you're doing a lot now so this is important yeah, so the testing labs in California, it's it, it, it really is the Wild West, to be honest. And in my uh, consulting company that I have right now, Reg Science, I work with some of the testing laboratories or the labs that want to, you know, be validated and get a license because the process now is very long and complicated. And... Um, What I see right now in California, and I'm sure it's the same in other states, is that scientists are scared 
to go into the cannabis industry. It has a stigma. You see these, you know, you hear these rumors, you hear these stories of what is happening in these laboratories. And what I've seen is that there are not enough qualified scientists. There are people that are, you know, CSOs and CEOs of these laboratories that have no idea about science and cannabis science or how you even run a lab and i think that's the major issue and so when i go in and try to uh, help a lab with consultation the problem is that i can't even help them because they don't know what the instruments are or what we're really even testing for what really is a pesticide or a microbial contaminant but they have a title of scientist or so, lab director so just sort of backtrack a little bit i think massachusetts is just a different entity than california so what mm -hmm. were these labs before they were testing cannabis like what were they testing or what were they <laughs> <laughs> the majority of them were nothing. This is where wow. it gets very interesting. There are a couple labs that started out in clinical um, testing or environmental testing. And I do believe that those labs are set up for success because to be perfectly honest, the state regulation in California, a lot of these regulations don't make sense. So I've had a lot of conversations with some of the, the the state regulating bodies, I'll say. And for example, the pesticide issue is a huge sticking point for me. Why can a laboratory set the action level of a pesticide by their instrument? The lab should not be able to decide that this product fails. It should be a set number that if you hit this action level of this pesticide, then you fail don't allow the lab to do it because most of them don't know what they're doing or they're raising those levels up so that more people pass okay. well and we're, and we're depending on this this is the whole idea of having a, a legal regulated market is that you know we can pick up our products at our dispensaries yeah. just like we'd buy some beer or wine and assume that it is it is what it is and there and there and there's there's so much that i mean i find the labels overwhelming but there's so much yeah. that they're testing for mm -hmm. and trying to give us information on and is it real i don't know that's the thing that kind of worries me but well yeah and if you think about it i was told in a conversation that watermelon was used as a crop where they took the um action levels for the pesticides and put them into cannabis and i'm like who's smoking watermelon <laughs> And it's just these very complicated regulations that California has, and a lot of other states are following California's lead. But I know, things need that? to change. And you know, if you have a pesticide on a on a grape that you have an allowable level, okay, you're drinking that wine or you're eating that grape. But over in cannabis, if it's an inhalable product, you're smoking it. We don't know what happens when you smoke certain pesticide levels. You know, there's a lot of research that needs to happen, hence why the federal regulations need to come in. And 
I'm one of the few people who say, yeah, I want it federally regulated, but I want it federally regulated for the science and the consumer safety, not for other things. I mean, they, I mean, I, I, I mean, we can do this. We did it with alcohol. Somehow alcohol was prohibited and now no one gets sick off of moonshine. So we can do this people. We have, we have the capacity. So I know you're talking about gas and cannabis testing. Is that something you're doing or is that something that's coming up or is that something that you want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, so in terms of the instrumentation in the labs, you need to have high purity gases. So that's one of the, the things that these laboratories need to pay attention to. But at the same time, a lot of people are using gases for manufacturing and extraction. And so I think that there needs to be a lot of education. And so part of my consulting company goes and educates not just the testing laboratories, but I go to the manufacturers, the extractors, the um, cultivators, and I try to educate everyone about best practices. And what sort of, yeah, what's, so these things, so is that for ethanol, is that for tincture extractions? And so what kind of things are people not doing right or things that you're concerned about or things that need, uh, I don't know, just addressing at this point? I think people need to understand the hazards of a lot of these gases, especially while going through these manufacturing processes and using something that is high purity. If you use industrial grade gases for a lot of these processes, there are contaminants in there. And then it's directly going into these products that consumers are using. And hopefully the labs will catch it when they're testing it but it is a huge problem and cost comes into play here because obviously high purity gases and other products other consumables or chemicals are more expensive right. so you know that comes into play as well so are these ta- we're talking about like vape pens we're talking about every- are we talking about everything that's sort of sold outside of the flour is it including flour ethanol or yeah. gases So we're talking about everything. If you're an indoor cultivator, a lot of people do use carbon dioxide. Um, I'm not as worried about that for for contamination issues, but really any product that you get, including flour, you have to be worried about the safety of it. So obviously if you have flour and it's contaminated with heavy metals, pesticides, or aspergillus mold, If you then take that product and you manufacture it, a lot of times the mold or the bacteria will, you know, not be a a harmful situation anymore because the temperature and the process will kill it. However, those pesticides or those heavy metals will then be concentrated. And so a lot of times those concentrated products like vape pens and distillates, all of those things, they're more contaminated. Like one more thing to, wow, goodness gracious. All right. So I don't want to talk about gas and cannabis anymore. It's scaring me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's talk about, I mean, so you're working this. Let's talk about what your consulting is. And let's, I mean, in the pandemic, you know, I keep saying that on the other side, you know, cannabis is going to be one of those things that's going to save us because we'll never get to leave America again. And you can do everything Mm -hmm. with it. Um, Mm -hmm. So how have you seen it? What's going on out there with your consulting business? What have you seen change in eight months that maybe you didn't think would ever change? I think it's, it's speeding up some things in some ways. 
I think it is speeding things up in some ways, you know, as it is an essential business. Um, I, yeah, essential business. Did you see that coming? Um, <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. I, I do. I, I'm getting more calls and more emails for possible job opportunities. But what I'm seeing is a lot of people are becoming more concerned about the risk because they are getting into it and they see that there are a lot of bad players and things that are contaminated and a lot of people want to do it the right way and so that's when I get called and so I've been seeing that change a little bit, especially during the pandemic. I think because certain things have slowed down, they're able to think about, okay, let's do best practices. But really the majority of the calls I've been getting is for facility contamination. So there's a bug bomb that in California is very prevalent. And if you let that bug bomb off in your facility, you have a certain pesticide contamination for years. The half-life is years and it's next to impossible to get rid of. And so if you grow in that facility, you're going to fail every test because it's a category one pesticide. What's a bug? So, that sounds terrible. What's a bug bomb? <laughs> Like it's a canister that you let off and this, this basically pesticide bomb gas goes off in your facility. So you don't have these bugs, but they think they're doing a good thing. But in actuality, you have that pesticide that gets in the air vents and it moves around and you can't clean it with water. It's not water soluble. So I've seen businesses actually shut down because they can't pass a product or then they put that product on the street. So it's not, you know, legal. Right. So are they, this is because I've heard like, like greenhouse growers with their ladybugs and different things. And the people were trying to be like, in, I guess, Humboldt County or, you know, the different areas in California that are trying to be completely pesticide free. So yeah. what's the flip side of this? Like what, what do they think people are doing with these bug bombs? They just think it's a normal, they think it's an acceptable pesticide and they think it's yeah, yeah they, they, think it's, they think it's okay because outside of cannabis, you know, the, the pesticide regulations are extremely different. Right. And it's so overregulated, especially in California, that you can have the lab, like I said, set that action level of that pesticide. And the one that I'm talking about is actually category one. So if the lab detects it, you fail. And so they just don't want the bugs because on the, the flip side, the bugs can destroy their, you know, right. the insects can destroy their crops. So outside of cannabis, these bug bombs are super common. And before regulations, all the indoor cultivators were using them. Oh, very so interesting. it's mostly those people that have been in the industry for a long time that continue. They're like, oh yeah, this is what we've always used. It's worked. Well, yeah, it keeps the insects away, but now you're going to fail. All right. Well, that's, so I'm kind of more interested about, so you're talking about people coming in who, I mean, I talk about women coming into this industry who really want to do the right thing. And I talk about this all the time. So mm -hmm. it makes me hopeful. So you're meeting people who are actually saying, okay, this is a health and wellness industry. We want these products that we are giving to people talking about health and wellness to really be as good as they can be. So you're seeing that coming. It's not just the guys with the money who are trying to like, whatever they're trying to do. I see both. 
Okay. But I think more of the people trying to do the right thing do come to me because I can help them understand the regulations and then how their product will be clean and will test clean and give them the best practices. Or like I said, if their facility is contaminated, how are they going to fix it? And so I honestly have seen a lot of really bad players in the industry, kind of shocking things. I mean, I've gone into grow facilities where some of the owners claim to be part of the mafia and I just need to fix it. And it's kind of funny because I'm this mom who walks in and they're like, you're the consultant? And I'm like, yes, it's me. Hi, I'm here. Hi. <laughs> oh, that's All right, so let's talk about what you're working on now. I know the two big things you're doing author work and you're, go, you're kind of like you've rounded back to the community college thing too, which I think is exciting. Um, so yeah. do you want you to kind of together and whatever yeah. you want to talk about first? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a contributing author on a chapter in a cannabis textbook that is coming out in February. A cannabis textbook. That's so exciting. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's called Cannabis Laboratory Fundamentals. Um, the publisher is Springer. And it's, as far as I know, the first textbook of this kind. And I'm a contributing author on the chapter about microbial contamination. So a lot of the testing that goes into ensuring that there is no bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, and then mold, specifically in California, aspergillus. And it's interesting because the testing that you do on the microbial contamination is exactly what they do for COVID. So the quantitative PCR. So I've had, I don't know how many calls like, hey, will you come and help us run the COVID tests? You know, that kind of thing. Are, so, are you transitioning? Or you know? Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> transitioning at all. Um, and so the textbook, it was the first time I, I've done this work. I've, I've gone and done some review of some textbooks before when I was a community college professor, but this is the first time I actually wrote anything and it was an interesting process and it's been fun. So I'm excited about the book coming out and connected to that actually, I have been talking to multiple community colleges about a cannabis science certification program. So this is near and dear to my heart. It's extremely exciting because I think it's time that we look at these certification programs, not just four-year degrees or graduate degrees, because the cannabis industry needs ethical qualified scientists. Yes. So why not go in and develop a program and have it all the way from harvesting to sample preparation to, you know, statistics, ethics, data, and really be able to get some good scientists in the industry. I love that. Well, we have to train the next generation. That's kind of like the whole point of the show is to meet, you know, and, and encouraging women into this. I mean, I know science and women in general is having issues, but you know, again, can we build an industry that is not making women fit into some place, but is something that is created for women, caregivers, people who have real lives. And now we're doing this after the pandemic when we all kind of get it. But I love that. That's so exciting. And at the community college level, just, you know, these are real jobs, people. These are real, honest to God jobs that are like engaging and important and they need quality people. 
True. Yeah, absolutely. I actually started my college career at a community college. And so it was a very great experience. Um, the instructors actually knew my name and it was very engaging. And so then going off to the university, it was a completely different experience. And so I do think that the community college is the right place to start these programs. And I was involved in a certification program in Oakland for microscopy. So using microscopes and it was a great, and it still is a great program. And so I have a little bit of experience in the microscopy. So let's do it in cannabis science. That's great. So were, this, so were the schools open to you? How did you engage them? Who did they come to you? Did you go to them? And I know they're doing some things out here in Massachusetts at Holyoke Community College. So that's good to see they're doing it out there too. Yeah, so I've had a couple people approach me actually, and one of them approached me at the Wine and Weed show last year. And because I have that wine experience and then the cannabis, and then I was like, oh, well, I've been a community college adjunct professor, let's talk. And so we're getting to more of the final discussions right now. And then also the, the talk of using this cannabis textbook as well. So it kind of comes full circle and I don't know what my role with the certification program would be. However, I will say that I love teaching and to be able to teach at that community college level, you get all different kinds of students, different backgrounds, different ages. Yeah, it's a way to diversify the industry too. Another way to mm -hmm. diversify is to grab people from a different level of academia. I love that too. Yes, absolutely. And so it's very exciting to me. And even just to be able to give information concerning the curriculum would be very um, rewarding for me. Oh, great. All right. Oh, we're like talking for a while. All right. So we actually have to take a break. I can't believe it. All right. So this has been awesome talking science and cannabis with my friend Renee Engel Goodner. And of course, Dory, you've been a little quiet. But she's I have. Talk I can't get a word in edgewise. You guys are so good. <laughs> chat, chat, chat. All right. So we will be back after this break. See you on the other side. Surprise. It's me again. I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone who's made season two of the Canna Mom show so much fun and so popular. Honestly, I'm a little overwhelmed. And to show our gratitude, the Canna Mom show team has some exciting news to share with you. If you are a cannabis focused business or want to find cannabis industry connections in your field or want to engage with cannabis activists, we want to hear from you. Because beginning in 2021, the Cannamon Show will be offering sponsorships that will allow you to support the voices of women in this industry that need to be elevated and give you the opportunity to connect with the thousands now engaged each and every week with the Cannamon Show on multiple social media platforms, podcast distribution sites, and internationally on our Canadian Cannamon Amy Ryman site, Hip lives. So if you sell a product, offer a service, or want to engage others, the Cannamom Show wants to hear from you. And together, we will crush that cannabis stigma one can of story at a time. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back. We are going to be talking a little more science. But first, my poor friend Dory has been so quiet. She's not usually so quiet. She hasn't been able to get a word in. So she's going to share a little bit about what she's been doing that in Texas with Half-Baked Housewives know why we're friends and has a couple of questions. So go for it, Dory. It's all yours. 
All right. Well, first of all, you know, since Renee mentioned the wine and weed show, I just want anybody out there who or organizes that show to know that when the pandemic's over, I, I'll be a panelist. It sounds like the best <laughs> show ever. I've never been. I didn't even know it existed. That's awesome. It's a good combination, though. It's kind of my nightly combination. So, but yeah, Half Baked Housewives, we are an organization for women over the age of 40 to learn about cannabis. I'm in a state where it's not legal at all. And a lot of our followers are in the same boat. So they're curious. Uh, another thing that's great that happens with women as we age is we stop caring about what other people think about us. Um, and so we've got more freedom to try new things. So we just educate and break the stigma. Just like you talked about in the scientific community, there's a stigma against cannabis. Same thing with women over 40 and 50. We were raised that it was bad and we raised our kids that way. And our kids must think we're nuts now that we're gone the other direction, but it's all good. Uh, so, but I do have some new products coming online soon. And I do want to do a shameless plug to join the group. We have a private Facebook group called Half-Baked Housewives, the Sisterhood. So it's private and it gives us a safe space to ask questions or talk about results where nobody can judge us. So Half-Baked Housewives, the Sisterhood on Facebook, just uh, if you're interested, please join. And she has some great oh. products too. Actually, I went online last night. I like the grinder. That's pretty interesting oh. that you have that knife. <laughs> Wasn't that cool? So, so it is a different perspective, right? Because, yeah. you know, you walk into a dispensary and the first time you buy it, you get those little handheld grinders. But then you think about it when I'm almost 60. So when I do those handheld grinders, it hurts. And so to do the electric one where you just push a button and it grinds it for you, it's so nice. Creating products for aging people. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, but Renee, I did have a question. So I know that cannabis is not federally regulated yet. Hemp is. And down here in Texas, we just, this is the first year we could grow hemp. And we had a, a farm here in San Antonio who was going to, they were going to do a big grand opening celebration and have industry people in. And they had to postpone because their THC level, the 0.03, they hit that way sooner than they thought they were going to. So they had to harvest. So we do have the federal regulations for hemp. So how, how do, you, do you see any of, are, is it regulated beyond just the percentage of THC? So that's a really interesting question that you ask. And it's so much of a gray area that people just don't want to talk about it. And I actually had a sample that I was testing at one point in, in a testing laboratory, and I thought it was hemp because of the THC concentration. And so the Bureau of Cannabis Control wouldn't comment on it because if you look at the regs, the word hemp or the definition of hemp is nowhere in those state regulation, the, the actual regulations. And so really you see these hemp products sold everywhere, these gas stations and online. And while I think some of them are legit and safe, I really believe that all of these products go in and no one's watching what's in them and really how they're regulated. So yes, hemp is defined by the percentage of total THC and it has to be below 0.3%. And the majority of the hemp I've tested is what we call hot. It's higher than that percentage. But I've done a couple studies where we took these you know federal hemp samples and we tested them using the same testing regulations for cannabis and i would say the majority of them 
don't have at all what is stated on the label. And most of them are contaminated with pesticides, heavy metals, sometimes microbials. And usually the stated cannabinoid profile, so the CBD or whatever else is in it, it's not accurate as to what's on the label. And I've even seen psychoactive THC at, at those levels in a lot of these hemp products. So I think it's going to be interesting once hemp is looked at more in terms of federal regulation and testing, and then when cannabis is federally regulated. I think it's going to be very interesting. I believe these labs will need DEA licenses and things such as that. We'll see how it, how it shakes out. But there is a lot of hemp testing in these state cannabis labs. Now, how, so can you explain, we have the Delta 8 in Texas because that's mm -hmm. legal. And so I don't know if this is a myth or if it's real, but they're saying it's so close to Delta 9, which is where we go into cannabis that's not going to be legal in Texas right now, that you can still get high off of it. Now, I have not experienced that. It just made me really sleepy. But is that true? Is Delta 8 like cannabis light or something? Yeah, you know, the, the story is, is that there are psychoactive properties of Delta-8. And so there are so many different cannabinoids out there, interestingly enough, but we can really only put on the label the ones that we have standards for. And what I mean by that is the lab is able to buy a standard. For example, this is Delta-9 THC. And we can test for it and say with certainty that yes, you have this much Delta-9 in your product or your flower. So Delta-8, there is a standard now that came out not too long ago. And in terms of the chemistry and what the reports are out there on the street is that it is somewhat psychoactive. However, I, if you see Delta-8 on the label and you're in a state that is not regulated, you don't really know that's what you're getting. So really, unless you're in a regulated um, industry, for example, a dispensary in California, and if the lab is doing what the lab is supposed to do, then you know you actually really have that amount of Delta-8 or Delta-9 or CBD in that product. So complicated. Actually, I can't, can we spin back to the 3.3% of hemp? Is there any movement to change that? Because I hear from farmers, this is a really hard um, standard to keep up. Like I talk to people, they want to make it one or something more. Is there, an, is that something you're hearing about? And, and really, what is the impact of this 0.3 versus one? I don't, it doesn't seem like it should be that big a deal. <laughs> um, so I have heard talk about raising that number. We also have to remember that there is an acceptable range of potency numbers. So you can have, if you think it's 0.3, it, you, we might be allowed to go to 0.9, which I'm just putting that out there. Mm -hmm. And so does it really matter? Well, I mean, I don't think so. Um, you know, really it comes down to the psychoactive manner, you know, that the, the cannabis has or the hemp has. I will say that I've worked with a lot of farmers with hemp and it's so difficult to be able to hit that number because of harvest time, different parts of the plant, different parts of the location that it, I mean, it's a nail biter. Yeah. And 
how is the lab actually testing it with their sample prep? How is the farmer actually taking the crop and sending it in for testing? So it's a really complicated situation that something needs to change, in my opinion. And we need to work really closely with the farmers because really that's the answer. Instead of some, someone in an office saying, well, it's gonna be this, why not go into the field? Let's talk to the farmers. Let's talk to the labs and figure out how this can work. That would be so nice. So we'll see. Yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe 2021 we'll have a shift and understand that rural America that's, you know, having all else, other sorts of issues. This is another thing that we can help with, you know, make their lives easier. Can you imagine the negotiation in Congress to come up with a 0 0.03? You know, it had nothing to do with common sense. No, it had nothing to do with anything. So again, like to have smart people who know what they're doing to make a decision about a plant that we know was created, you know, everyone, we've been using it for 10,000 years. You know, we put a hundred years of weird regulations and, you know, we've scared ourselves into a corner. And like you said, you're trying to re, you're trying to build this industry. So it's done right. Right. You're not reinventing the wheel. We, we've done this before. We have regulated industries that, our products that we consume or put in, you know, put on our bodies or whatever it is we do. Um, we sort of assume like, you know, in modern America, I just assume stuff I'm buying is safe. Like I don't think about it that much, honestly, but maybe we should more. All right. So we are actually running up on time and I, we've talked all about your business, your consulting, all the stuff mm -hmm. that you're doing. Let's talk about your sort of background. So you're not really a consumer, but you said you have sort of your native American heritage and your father mm -hmm. so you came into this an interesting on, on top of all your biology chemistry all the yeah. other smart things you bring into it yeah. you come in from another interesting angle too yeah so i grew up in a household that my father was a cannabis grower and obviously i didn't really understand that when i was really young but he had this his shed in the back which he called his reloading shed where he was you know i guess making bullets because he's a hunter you know he was a hunter and i realized that when he'd go out there with some of his friends i would smell something you know coming from the shed and so he he was cultivating out there and also a, a major cannabis user and it was part kind of of the culture and I never really thought that it was weird or different and when he was diagnosed with end-stage colon cancer cannabis really helped him yeah. and so I had first-hand knowledge and experience of seeing what that did for my father and so I am so I, I want to be an educator I want to tell people what this plant can do as long as it's grown responsibly without, you know, the contaminants and the products are made responsibly. And when I was in the testing labs, I worked with a lot of people who were making their own medicine. And a lot of times we would do the testing pro bono. We would say, okay, this is what you should do next. And you really connect with these people who are sick or who are caretakers and trying to, to help someone who's sick or dying. And so it is a huge part of why I do this. And that, that's the thing, like people see me and I'm a mom and they're like, why are you doing that? And we just need to explain that it is a plant that can help so many people and we need to get rid of the stigma and we need to really stop looking at the industry in this myopic view and there are unique characteristics of cannabis but really it's another agricultural crop so as you said let's quit trying to reinvent the wheel and look at what we already know 
and work with people within the industry and outside of the industry. But yeah, my background, I, I look at things in a different way. And so I'm one of the few scientists who kind of made that leap into cannabis. And I think a lot of it does have to do with my background. And so I, I'm very thankful for that. But it's not been an easy ride. It just is not. It's never easy to be a pioneer, but we're very proud to talk to you and hear your story yes. and to know what you're doing. And where did you grow up? What state did you grow up in? I grew up in uh, Northern California in okay. the East Bay area. And so I, I'm in the Sacramento area now, and I've only ventured out of California once for grad school in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> <Big difference. laughs> and I just love talking to people in different parts of the country. It's just really interesting. You know, it, we come to it from different perspectives, but again, this is a holistic product that yes. is health and wellness, that is culturally... <sighs> It's been damaged in our American culture. And, you know, these stories are going to bring it back. I believe so. Yeah. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. Dory, do you want to say anything else? Any last questions, concerns, anything you want to like follow up with my friend? No, I will just say, you know, even though we say that 0.03 is limiting, you know, my stepson has Dravet syndrome. He takes Epidiolex, which is the first CBD medication approved by the FDA and it works. It does cut down the number of seizures. So I'd love to see hemp be just as safe as regular cannabis too here in Texas. So thanks for all you do. On that thank happy you. note. All right. So thank you, my friend, Renee. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, follow you, know what you're doing, the community call stuff, what's the best way? So I have a website for my um, consulting company. It's, re it's reg, R-E-G, science, LLC.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Renee Engel Goodner. And so I would love to talk to everyone out there. I am available for educational talks and I go to colleges and try to inspire students to get into this uh, industry. Yay, science. Thank you yes. so much, Renee. This was a great conversation. And for my special co-host, Dory Wild, check out Half-Baked Housewives. Good job today. Good seeing you. All right, thank you all. <laughs> And my friend, thank you. for my oh, my co-host Dave Yaz. Thank I mean my actually you didn't co-host today. You're just my producer today, Dave. I'm still the Canabro. You still the the Canabro. He is the Canabro, David Yaz, Janice, our social media team doing a great job. I want to thank Josh Lampkin and Bella Jaffe for writing and performing the Canamom theme music. But most importantly, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Where we are to the Canamom show, where we're talking about caring for and giving voice to women in the emerging cannabis industry, one cannabis story at a time. Please follow us on social media. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Canamom show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, 
real life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.